Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We're happy to be back with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Kira, how is life? What's going on? Life's great. Um, Things are busy and, you know, there's a ton uh, of stuff floating around in the climate space these days. Lots of things in the news and lots of things going on um, in all of the various uh, subsectors. So I'm I'm excited about all that. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a busy time. It's weird. I keep hearing people talk about how this is like a once in a generation opportunity with all the stuff that's happening at the Biden administration. And I'm like, really? Is it? It seems to me that it still kind of feels a little bit like, I don't know, like that. it's it's always a marathon, right? And like, maybe there are some moments where you sprint a little bit more, but um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm encouraged. It's just, I guess I can't believe too much of the the hype that like we're in this really special moment I don't mean to say that I don't think it's special I mean to just say that I have a hard time thinking that anything's special because we're so used to just like (laughs) the grind you know um yeah yeah but uh but yeah I agree it's been an exciting time exciting um few months I guess even now as things are getting ramped up uh with the administration and just you know just like I guess the sort of the beginnings of the emergence from the pandemic um yeah yeah I have this one thing I was I was doing on social media this week that I decided would be great to talk about for a second because it feels new I I I forget sometimes that I maybe have been reading things that other people in the building industry haven't been reading um and I posted something about this issue of the term net zero um, on LinkedIn and and uh, and I've been reflecting a lot on it in the past year really. Um, mm-hmm. Some climate activist friends of mine have started a really successful um, really social media campaign around the idea that net zero is not zero mm-hmm. and it's more coming as a critique originally from issues around um, offsetting carbon, uh, the ways that the term net zero is starting to get used by a lot of big corporations that kind of have no real intention to reduce or not nearly the level of intention to reduce their carbon footprints that they should, namely oil and gas companies. Right. Um, and, uh, and so they've really been pushing back on the use of the term net zero. And I posted about it and, um, yeah, I just think I, I think we all need to be aware of these larger dialogues that are happening in the climate movement around terminology, because I think rightfully there's a lot of critique of the idea that if we push a company, for example, to go net zero, um, it really just allows them to buy their way out of the problem. Yep. As opposed to saying that the company needs to, you know, make it using a different word to describe commitment to the climate crisis and their need to reduce their carbon footprint by a certain amount over time. Um, it's a little more complicated when you talk about buildings. Yes. Kira, you were you were sort of uh, thinking about that more and. Um, and so I don't, it's like, I don't have a word to replace it, except to just maybe take the word net out, which doesn't resolve everything. But 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know how, how it's felt for you. Like, was it new for you, this idea? Well, it's been rumbling a little bit, sort of, as you suggest, and I've been um, paying attention to it more and more in the past, I would say, few months. Um, and I think, you know, climate scientists are, well, that piece that you posted was really climate scientists talking about the issues there. And I have actually looked into it a little bit. And climate scientists have been sort of raising that concern, I think, for a bit. Um, it's probably getting more visibility now due to that campaign that you were referring to, the net zero, not zero um, campaign, which is sort of more activism based. But I think they're basing it on the same thing. And I think, I mean, it's so interesting because they're really urging industry and business to stop sort of slinging net around recklessly because, you know, that is sort of a promise of future negative emissions, which in effect reduces the incentive to cut carbon emissions now, right? I mean, and that that's concerning because that's not the on-ramp that we're looking for here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's future versus now, but it's also sort of this apples and oranges issue yeah. of offsets, which... I, yes. I haven't read this book, but I'm, I'm, there's a, a book that a, a couple of people, I know the, one of the authors is Danny Collinward, wrote about offsets or carbon markets, really. It's mm -hmm. pointing out that, that, you know, if what we're doing is trying to pay somebody else for some carbon emissions that we are going to emit and they are going to then uh, stop emitting or they're going to sequester, then we need to kind of know that that, that sequestering is really happening uh and and research is showing that it's not really happening uh and, and right. i think a lot of that has to do with sophistication that we need to build around um different industries like i, I i'm still pretty down for the idea that if i'm a building owner and it's yeah. really expensive for me to reduce my carbon footprint i pay another building owner to reduce their carbon footprint in uh -huh. a way that's cheaper than what i would do but but paying a, a a forestry company or something to sequester the same amount of carbon in in trees or something like that, there's just so much research showing that that doesn't really that that's work. not really yeah. working very well. Nope. And you know, and so it's not to say it could never work, but like we all need to be mindful of the fact that if we're buying these credits and offsets, um, or that you know, if there's a future in which there's taxes that that those monies might not go to the thing that they would go to if we were to just spend it on reducing our own footprints, you know? Right. Um, and, and yeah, so it's enor enormously interesting to me. I just wanted to get it out if, if folks haven't seen any of this stuff. Um, I know it's pretty nerdy, but I think we really do need to listen to the call to stop throwing the word net around. Uh, I think it's time to start thinking about other terms that we can use um, it's partially in solidarity with the rest of the climate movement. We need to try to use words that resonate across all these boundaries. And it's just going to increasingly make us look out of touch. <laughs> right. Um, well, it is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting both for the building industry and, and beyond. I mean, there's a lot of organizations that have net in their title. I mean, in some ways, it is a little bit baked into what's happening now, um, even yeah, in yeah. sort of financing and other areas. But with respect to the building industry, I do think that it has, you, you're already seeing it kind of being phased out. I've noticed that in the COP26 language that's coming out of Architecture 2030 and others that are sort of getting ready for that, there you don't see net yeah. in there at all, um, which yeah, I find yeah. interesting. I think that there's more to be 
explored here. And yes, it's nerdy and it's language, which, so I love both those things. <laughs> yes, totally. And of course, well, we, yeah. it comes from being also, remember, we've been stuck with this word sustainability that nobody likes <laughs> <laughs> for years. Um, and that's, you know, its own kettle of um, concern for many, but yeah. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I know why the word net or the term net zero came about and why it's been really useful. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard, right? All these words, I don't like it any more than the next person does. So we're always kind of changing the terms, but, um, but you know, that's, that's the work we got to do the work. It is the work. And it, it's interesting because the work in this case really means how do we keep the on ramp wide open while we are pushing really hard at the leading edge and we can't make you know we have to there's a lot of negotiation that has to happen in there yes yes totally well speaking of um of terminology of nerdiness of uh, <laughs> of leadership this is a very good way i think to introduce our guest for the day uh i we're so delighted to have kate uh simonin Am I, did i pronounce your name simonin. correctly kate simonin simonin okay there we go Thank you. Um, Kate, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. It's great to have you, Kate. Um, and I'm going to do a quick introduction and then we'll jump into some questions. Um, so Kate is an architect and a structural engineer and the executive director of the Carbon Leadership Forum, which um, I hope she can explain for those of you, uh, those listeners that may not know exactly what that is. Uh, she's also professor and chair of the Department of Architecture at the University of Washington. Um, connecting significant professional experience in high performance building design and technical expertise in environmental life cycle assessment, she works to spur collective action to bring embodied carbon to zero through research, uh, collaboration, and the incubation of new approaches. Um, I would also just like to point out that Kate was recently, this spring, was on the jury for the AIA Coat Top 10 for Students competition. Thank you so much for doing that, Kate. It was fun. Um, I'm glad. And um, to get us started, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture, engineering, and sustainability and teaching? What what has been your path? Oh, well, you go way back. So, you know, if you asked me what I was wanted to do when I was 18, I thought I wanted to be an astronaut or an architect. Um, So uh, maybe this is somewhere in between. So it's a a combination of design and technical thinking um, that has always been intriguing to me. So, um, so I mean, I think if you, if, you know, where I am today is an, um, an, an a- academic educator and researcher. I came out of um, practice. So I worked for over 15 years as an architect and structural engineer in the San Francisco Bay Area. And in that process, there were increasingly questions um, in practice that I wanted answered. Uh, you know, ranging from um, how do we advance prefabricated housing systems to what is the carbon footprint of the materials that we make? And um, I was in, you know, asking questions around, you know, can you make a green building if you're importing um, a glass and aluminum curtain wall from Asia? And what is the impact of transportation? So I, I got myself into a position of really wanting to dive into answering questions um, and do the research and simultaneously um, enjoying teaching. I teach structures and um, design technology to architecture and construction management students and really um, wanting that to be the, the place of my focus. So training training emerging professionals and, uh, and research to advance practice. Uh, well, speaking of training those emerging professionals, um, 
I wonder if you could say a little bit about what people should know about entering these professions right now, given where things are. Well, first off, I think working in um, the building industry is one of the most exciting and rewarding uh, careers, primarily because it's uh, constantly learning and improving. So, you know, we're, 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 um, I was joking the other day that our buildings are um, um, not so rapid prototypes, um, you know, we, but we are constantly prototyping and innovating. So, um, and there's just such a range of different opportunities. So both it's a place that we're learning and it's also a place where experience um, it, um, improves your capacity. Um, so I think as an, an arc of a career, these are really great, um, great professions. Yay, all right, I love this and I'm so excited to dive into some of the details with you, Kate. So, so just to get us started, can you tell us what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life so far? Uh, I think that probably the, the thing I'm feeling the most excited and proud about is um, a scaling of impact. Uh, the Carbon Leadership Forum uh, started uh, with a real group of um, em- what we would call ourselves embodied carbon nerds. It was probably about a dozen of us who started meeting in the um, a decade ago, trying to answer questions about what the carbon impact of um, building materials are and how could we inform and impact practice. Uh, a, a, um, you know, after working together for a significant amount of time, so we were, you know, maybe five or six years together uh, answering questions like, how do we calculate the carbon footprint of concrete, or what's the um, what's the typical uh, um, uh, carbon footprint per square foot or square meter of um, construction? Uh, we started to recognize that, um, you know, why were we doing this work? That this we were we were curious about how we can make an impact on climate. Uh, the the impact that needs to happen globally is so large um, that we. Uh, needed to change our tactic from sort of a small group of people thinking um, to how do you get a larger group of people acting um, and understanding the urgency of um, the building sector driving towards industrial decarbonization. That would be another way of framing this, but we have a real responsibility and opportunity to um, help um, help these difficult to decarbonize sectors um, have market motivation to do so. So about um, about three years ago, we shifted tactic um, uh, to uh, use what um, model after a collective impact model. So, um, and um, collaborating and scaling. So we launched a network that has grown into um, an online community and regional, regional carbon leadership forum hubs. So we have over 25 regional hubs of volunteers who are um, making championing um, opportunities for embodied carbon reduction, places from Nashville um, to Alberta to um, Los Angeles. Uh, and seeing seeing that grow um, is, is just thrilling. So, you know, I can watch on LinkedIn and see that there's a post, you know, the, the, the um, Nashville hub is having their first um, uh, meeting coming up uh, or Minneapolis is just forming. So uh, watching that happen and seeing the scale of engagement uh, uh, on on really total building decarbonization, so bringing materials into the operating um, carbon picture is is exciting. Um, A couple other examples of scaling, um, uh, the Carbon Leadership Forum collaborated with some of our sponsor or um, firms and others to 
um, model a challenge like the um, Architecture 2030 challenge. So we issued a Structural Engineers 2050 challenge that structural engineers should be tracking um, and ultimately eliminating embodied carbon in their structures. Uh, that was taken on by the American Society of Civil Engineers, Structural Engineers Institute as a commitment initiative. And now I think it was something like 29 or 30 uh, structural engineering firms from small to global structural engineering firms have signed on to this commitment and are working to um, developing um, pathways to decarbonize structures. Um, so these are, you know, uh, that's an example or another, another example is the embodied carbon and construction calculator. Uh, that was a project that the Carbon Leadership Forum helped incubate and um, convene over 50 sponsors uh, to create a calculator to report, um, or really it compiles data on product carbon footprints and made it, make an open access tool. That's now being head by, headed up as an independent nonprofit building transparency. So I'm, I'm both excited about and proud about the, um, the idea of um, recognizing that um, in order to act, we have to um, uh, share, collaborate, um, empower many people to act and lead. And it's super exciting watching all of that um, uh, happen and being engaged in that. I can imagine how exciting that would be. There's a lot of things that you've been sort of a seed of, and I'm incredibly impressed. Uh, also, just for listeners, if you haven't uh, listened to Stacey Smedley's uh, interview with us a few months back, the tool that Kate was just mentioning, uh, also known as EC3, is something that Stacey talks about a lot in her uh, episode. So uh, feel free to listen to that. And I think we'll be talking about um, the structural engineering 2051 coming up pretty soon too. So like, yeah, you are in the middle of a lot of the hot topics uh, going on. And I love this idea of collective action as being the sort of the inspiration and the model for what you're doing, um, which actually is a good way to tee up one thing I've been really excited to see that you are working on more these days, which is policy work, um, public policy work specifically. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that there's, I think first off is recognizing that um, uh, a, a recognition that in um, there's many different scales of action that need to be happening simultaneously. So if I, when we talk about policy at the Carbon Leadership Forum, we talk about public policy, but also um, private uh, policy like green building programs or a corporate commitments. But you're asking specifically about um, public policy. Uh, um, what's what's been really intriguing to watch is the different ways in which embodied carbon or the carbon impact of building material manufacturing um, is coming into things like building codes or um, legislation, uh, and 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 it's coming both from the bottom up. If I call the bottom up being the building sector, saying we want to make a difference and we can do that. So uh, places where I see it coming up in that regard is is uh, an example would be the Bay Area Low Carbon Concrete Code Project in which Marin and, ooh, I'm not absolutely sure, I think Berkeley um, and others have adopted a, a low carbon concrete code. So all concrete that it, um, on permitted projects in Marin County is required to uh, declare product carbon footprints and be above, below a specific cap. Uh, so, there, there, you know, so that really came through leadership 
um, and a, you know, a, a vision of a local structural engineer, Bruce King, and the building department collaborator there. So that that would be what I'd see bottom-up policy, um, driven by the potential for an impact. Uh, Top-down is more um, driven from an understanding um, of the importance of addressing industrial decarbonization. So the building sector is seen as a market pull. Um, um, we consume over 90% of all cement in buildings and industry. And we are, you know, 50% of steel um, goes into, uh, into our sector. So if we think about decarbonizing these sectors, uh, which can't be done just by switching um, out the electrical grid, they, lots of heat is needed, um, fossil fuels are burning typically to get those heat, high heat levels, and also there's chemical reactions that take place. So these are difficult to decarbonize areas um, in which um, policy levers that are aiming to either incentivize or um, set caps on, on um, material purchasing, or even just require disclosure of um, um, uh, material carbon footprint uh, is seen as a way, as a lever to help, um, help drive industrial sector decarbonization. So it's both decarbonizing buildings and decarbonizing the facilities that make the buildings. Uh, and so we see things like the General Services Administration just at, um, adopting um, embodied carbon policies at both the building scale, so assessing the total carbon footprint of a building, and also at the product scale, sort of at the incentivizing purchasing or procurement of lower carbon um, materials. Uh, so that's something that's in place. Um, but, you, you know, even Biden's recent plan made, made a reference. I don't have the quote here, but something to, um, you know, addressing the power purchasing power of uh, the government to incentivize low carbon material um, choices. Uh, so uh, we, we see that we see that at the um, more action now at the federal scale, but that action has continued at um, been continuing at city and state scale. So you'll see Vancouver has um, a total um, um, to whole building um, embodied carbon reduction targets uh, by 2030, and they're instituting programs in which give some incentives for uh, buildings that come in at a lower carbon footprint. So we see it uh, at all scales of government, and we also see it at all scales of building from a material procurement scale to the whole building um, decarbonization. It's so great to see all of that sort of maturing and really coming into being um, at all those levels. Um, it's like it's like this move, this big shift towards accountability. Um, and it's great to see it. Um, you know, it's, it really feels like a system wide approach when you talk about all those different levels. So thanks for explaining that. Um, I wanted to ask if there's a project that you're working on right now that you'd like listeners to know about. Well, the immediate one that we're we're in, um, sort of in the weeds on right now is we're finalists on a competition uh, from the Lever for Change um, uh, program. So we're one of five finalists, and we put in a proposal uh, titled "Building with Biomass." So it, it um, uh, we see that there's a lot of opportunity to store carbon in building materials so using bio-based uh, or plant-based materials. Uh, and, you know, interesting to your early introductory conversation, um, it also means uh, in order to, to really make those reductions, you first you have to um, materially reduce the impact of what we build. Uh, and then our goal which should be to be storing more carbon in the long life buildings that we have. So it's it's a project. It's a collaboration with a really uh, great great team, 
uh, addressing data, um, uh, climate justice, um, uh, tools and methods, and, and, and really the on the ground, what does it mean to um, build, um, get those materials together, create new uh, manufacturing, local manufacturing industries. So it's been a really exciting process and we find out uh, later in June, whether or not we win. Exciting, that sounds so interesting and I look forward to learning more about that. Uh, Kate, I also wanted to ask you, um, you're the department chair, the architecture department chair at the College of Built Environments at the University of Washington. Can you talk a little bit about why you make time um, for that and, and about, I'd love to hear a little bit uh, your thoughts on sort of education as it relates to these topics and what, where, where the movement is there. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, when, um, when I first thought about uh, what, what I would be interested in doing, um, I thought, well, uh, maybe I'll, I'd, I'd put my name in the hat to be chair in the future. Um, but as I, you know, when, uh, this is the, this is, you know, there's many ways of phrasing it, but I, this is the decade where we need to make decisive action. And, uh, I think that, uh, um, you know, it's the next generation of, the, uh, you know, new and emerging professionals that are really going to help us make these changes. It is the, the next 30 years is the arc of their career. They need to be prepared to address, uh, global, global challenges. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I saw this as part of a um, climate action um, responsibility that if I, you know, that, that it was intriguing to me to think about how we should and could be shifting how we're teaching uh, and researching at the university to support, support practice through radical change. You know, universities aren't designed to be radical change agents. I mean, they're, they're, they are, they're created out of um, you know, I think of them as being created out of the dark ages um, of how do we not lose knowledge that was lost in the past? How do we create new knowledge, preserve it, disseminate it? Uh, it is not a structure that is designed to be nimble. I mean, it is designed specifically to be solid. Uh, and so that's, a, I think, a really interesting place to be, to think about how we can um, both be solid and dependable and nimble and um, change. I think the last, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't expecting to start being a department chair uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, um, which has shown that we can change. Uh, we can do a lot of things differently than we thought before. So I, I uh, it's been a challenging year, uh, let's put it mildly. Um, and I'm also very optimistic about what the next few years would bring as we look to um, uh, uh, you know, not return to where we were, but return, uh, move to where we would like to be. Yeah, I just have to say, as someone who's been teaching at UC Berkeley this year, that I cannot imagine what you do, Kate, and trying to juggle all the things that you juggle. It's just, um, yeah, I think that's one of those things about being in a university setting that I have so much respect for that you're doing. It's, it's, there's a bureaucracy there that is, can be so powerful, so influential when it's wielded well, um, you know, when it's directed well by thoughtful people like you, but it's also the kind of thing that can make you just like bang your head against the wall. <laughs> um, and so, you know, just 
Um, really have a lot of respect. Thank you for, for all of the time that you spend in committee meetings and all of those things. It's I believe passionately that that is a big part of the work. So thank you. Uh, and yeah, um, speaking of the work and all of the ways that it manifests, I, I want to ask you a question about, about this um, sort of relationship between the industry and what we think of as movements. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, 10 years ago being in a small room with people thinking about embodied carbon. Um, and so I want to ask you whether it's that room or other rooms that you're in. Do you feel like you're a part of the industry? Do you feel like you're a part of a movement? Um, is it both? How do you distinguish between those for yourself? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, first off, I do. I think that the green building industry and the building industry are just part of the building industry. I mean, mm -hmm. they're they're building it. To, so I see building the building industry as, um, a, you know, what a social economic system that works together. Mm -hmm. um, as a, uh, I I I think I do think of myself in some realm as an activist in a movement. So I do think that there's a movement around uh, how, and so what it, to me a movement means about people who are looking to shift the um, direction of things and to inspire inspire others to act. Uh, I guess there is, yeah, so, so both. My answer is both. Um, <laughs> I think that the, I feel, uh, and, and it's uh, like the, being part of the building industry sort of goes back to the question of why I think it's a great um, professional arc. It's just so incredibly fascinating to understand how and why people build, where things come from, why do we make a decision, how do we support the needs of our users. There's just just that whole part is is super interesting. Um, for me, the movement part is saying uh, climate action is essential. We need to be acting now. How do we how do we work within the system that we have uh, to shift it towards a system that will um, um, be a solution? Um, and and I think that there's just a lot of that. That's all. That's also energizing. It, it it's an idea that it's not a gigantic. Um, well, even though the industry might be the great big ship that's hard to shift, if enough people act together, we can we can pull it. So that that's mm -hmm. that's exciting. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a great way of thinking about it and and it, it also yeah it makes me think it's sort of in some ways what you're saying is you are an activist within a particular system and that system is the building industry and um and and that that's sort of one one way of answering that uh which um totally makes sense and i i think i think i think that's how i would say it myself too um okay well so as a as a movement um how do you think we're doing did you you've been at this long enough that you probably had at least thought about the year 2020 or, uh, you know, had some milestones in, in, in your head as to where we would be by now. Um, so I want to ask, what did you think we would be by now? And, you know, what have we done well? What have we not done well? Yeah, it's, it's, it is really interesting. I've been re very much reflecting around the 2020 flip because um, 30 years ago, I was a graduate student. Um, and 30 years from now, we're going to be at 2050 and I'm going to be, you know, a high, happy retired person um, reflecting on our successes. And 
sometimes, uh, you know, uh, if I look back, I can think of how I was influenced by um, Ed Masria and Architecture 2030. And when I first heard about the 2030 commitment and um, 2030 sounded so far away um, uh, that I, um, that it was easy to accept that challenge. Like, of course, of course we will all do that. Uh, I think it's um, in some aspects, well, it's disappointing that we are not more widespread in high performance buildings as a default. I think, you know, we can, if I, I'm, I'm thinking about the default buildings built in, in states and countries that still don't have um, energy codes. Um, so that aspect can be disappointing, but other aspects are just incredibly inspiring um, that there is a shared understanding of where we need to be going and the reductions that we need to make. And that those, that shared understanding is happening from politicians to business leaders to um, activists. Um, so I think that, that that's that's pretty um, inspiring to me. Um, so I, I think that there's, um, you know, it's also inspiring to think about how much change has happened in those 30 years. Um, so that's, it's nice to be able to reflect on seeing what things haven't changed at all and other things that have been transformative that gives me hope that the, um, that we can, we can, if, you know, if we all choose, we can make the changes that are needed. Um, so. Yeah, I love that. I, I guess I'll just maybe ask you one little part of that question um, to, to dig into a bit more. I want to know what you think we, what our biggest challenges are coming up as a community. Uh, I think it's the combination of finance and financial decision making and will to make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 so I think it, the hard challenge with climate action is um, getting to the point where uh, we are willing to invest in 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 better solutions. Um, and so I think that that I think is that that's you know there are um, low carbon solutions today from a material and operating perspective that are not a cost premium. So uh, some of that is still so there's two two tra treads. One is how do we make the easily available things the norm, and how do we understand that you know the the time and money investments that are needed to decarbonize are worth it because they have outcomes that we all desire. Um, and I'm optimistic about that. That's a challenge, but I'm optimistic based on a um, a shared understanding of. Um, I would put it the generation that sees their entire arc of life between now and you know 2070. We have adults who are seeing that they will be here in the future that we were talking about. That's right, Kate. And that's I think that's a really interesting way to look at that. Um, that's sort of the two-track thing. And um I totally agree that. What you know, how we make, how we continue to make it clear that those big investments are really worth it. Um, such a big, a big challenge. Um, we like to close, and we are reaching the end of our time with a question about um, who you're inspired by these days. Could be anybody. 
Well, my, my inspiration for the year is from the book Surviving the Climate Crisis by um, Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak. Um, so can I read a quote from that? Yes, please. I love that book. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, this is the quote. So they say, this is the decade in which contrary to everything humanity has experienced before, we have everything in our power. We have the capital, the technology, the policies, and we have the scientific knowledge that we have to half our emissions by 2030. But only if we choose this decade. Our parents did not have this choice because they did not have the capital, technologies, and understanding. And for our children, it will be too late. So this is the decade, and we are the generation. And that just gives me the chills. And this book goes out um, into great, uh, good detail about the optimism about the future we choose. And that's really been my sort of guiding light um, that we, we have the opportunity to choose the future we want. Um, and if we look forward towards that desired future state, that can help guide all, um, all of our actions moving forward. I love that, Kate. And I, I, I got chills too. Um, only if we choose this decade. It was very, very powerful and very motivating. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you. I, I love it. And thanks, Kate, for being with us. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, it's just, yeah, so much passion for your work that just comes out in every in every word. So yeah, thanks for being here. Well, thank you too for this great podcast. I've I've really enjoyed it and it's a real honor to honor to be here. So thank you so much. Awesome. Well, we have loved it. And we have loved being with you all again. Uh, that's it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.